buying B2B software has always been a huge pain in the ass. Most companies require you to book a demo, get grilled by an SDR before they route you to an AE, only to be asked the same 10 questions that you've already answered on a previous call. It takes way too much time, it creates a ton of unnecessary friction, and it doesn't have to be this way. We're doing another special DGU guest episode with Sam Sr., CEO of Testbox, and we're talking about why buying B2B software is broken and what you can do to fix it. Demand Gen U is officially in session. Let's do it. So Sam, I'm excited to have you on. I forgot to ask somebody that you recently hired for a little dirt or funny stories on you to get started. So just know that I forgot and you got off a little easy. How are you doing? Uh, that, that was very fortunate. I got to say. Uh, <laughs> well, th- thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. And I kind of wish I was hearing some dirt back at me so already but that's okay we'll wait we'll we'll wait we'll wait for another time (laughs) i still might ask just to give you a hard time but uh olivia if you're listening uh i'll I'll text you after we're done recording so uh before we jump into it give us a quick little rundown of test box uh for people who aren't familiar about test box they will become very familiar hopefully soon uh and not just from listening to this episode so give me the quick rundown as you said B2B software buying has historically been very broken and it has usually been about the sales rep and their experience rather than about the customer and how the customer wants to buy software. And so our goal is to make the software evaluation experience and decision making fantastic. And so we do that by enabling people to come to our marketplace, say these are the three or four options I'm interested in, get instantaneous access to those products where they have tons of data already in there that looks like that person. Uh, a bunch of use cases already pre-configured, usually the top five to 10 key things. And that enables someone to truly A-B test each of these products side by side, invite their stakeholders, and basically take notes on what they like, they don't like, and go from a very painful buying experience that is all about the salesperson to now a fantastic customer-led buying experience that enables them to really kick the tires and say, I'm extremely confident that this is the right solution for me because me and all my friends have spent the time figuring out that that is the case. I love it. Now, I'd say most CEOs of B2B tech startups usually don't start off as Bain consultants. So tell me how you started <laughs> as a Bain consultant and what you uncovered as a Bain consultant that got you to where you are right now. Yeah, I, I guess there was a chapter before that. So uh, I, I was also a software engineer at university. So I studied software engineering and economics. And I worked as a software engineer and as a decent software engineer, but I wasn't ever going to be the best software engineer ever. So I thought, okay, I, I'm excited about strategy and what you can do with technology. So how do you bring those two things together? So as, as you mentioned, I spent six years at Bain, a year in London, five years in San Francisco, and I spent a lot of my time focused on enterprise software. And during that time, I was doing a lot of like go-to-market and product strategy work, which led me to talking to hundreds of buyers of software. And each of them would consistently tell me that software buying is an extremely painful process for them. Sort of all the things we just said before. It's like opaque, feels like it's about them rather than about me as the customer. And when you've heard that hundreds of times, it's hard to not think that there's probably a better way to do it. And then it all really coalesced when I was living with someone who's buying a customer support platform for their company. They're like 100, 150 people at this time. Um, and they got led down a certain path by their VP of operations into Salesforce land. Salesforce Service Cloud specifically, which is really tough for early organizations. Um, And 18 months after deciding it was the right one for them, it turned out it wasn't. They went, they got all their money back from Salesforce, multiple implementation partners. Like it was just really, really painful because it wasn't the right solution for them. They ended up moving to Zendesk within two months, super easy. Um, 
but I kept going back to them and the, and the founder of the company as well. And they would consistently say, if we had been able to test and compare these options, we would never have bought Service Cloud. We would have always gone with Zendesk straight off the gate. And so I, I had heard this from hundreds of buyers that there was a pain point here. And I saw a pain point. Someone gave me a solution. I thought, surely there's a way to do this. And then off we went. We created, uh, we started with the platform that we built today, which is the first customer-led buying platform. Love that. So that was really the, the light bulb moment that that was the problem that you wanted to solve. That's exactly right. And, and we've now developed it further where it's not just the marketplace, but it's also how do we enable vendors who maybe have been, what is hilariously already legacy SaaS, um, to now be PLG or enable their customers to have much better buying experiences where they don't just see a demo, but they can experience it and play with it themselves and really do all the things they want to. So our goal here is when I say customer-led buying platform is people can buy through a marketplace that's fully self-serve, but also if they go to a vendor, our goal is that as many vendors as possible as possible are using TestBox as a way to empower and enable their prospects to make better decisions faster and be more confident about them. So when we were doing some prep for this episode, one of the things that you'd mentioned was, you know, people have been moving from gating content to ungating content. And I think there's this big shift that we're experiencing right now, and you probably know better than anyone, of B2B software companies moving from gating their products to ungating their products right now. Why do you think companies gated their products, you know, for so long? I think it's not massively surprising when you think about the rise of software. It was very fast, like kind of out of nowhere. Suddenly it was like, oh, we're using computers. We need software. They're going to do all these fantastic productive things for us. But it was so nascent 30 years ago, right? And everyone who was starting to make be a decision maker there probably wasn't familiar. They hadn't educated themselves. And there were all these companies saying, I can solve all of your problems. Now, if you're an uneducated buyer, you need someone to teach you. You need someone to be able to showcase how something can actually be valuable for you. This was true 30 years ago and absolutely made sense. Now, over the last like five to 10 years, we've seen a really strong transition where the people who have the buying power are significantly younger um, or they have been people who have been leading, uh, and sorry, let me say using software since they were five, 10 years old, using the internet, they're really familiar with it all. I've used this example before where like, everyone now knows when they're buying a piece of software, the cog icon means settings. 30 years ago, that wasn't true. We needed to be taught how the hell to get to settings. That isn't the case anymore. And so you've got all these people who are super educated, know how to use software, that they don't need their handheld anywhere near as much because that's their norm. And so you're seeing this need for a transition uh, from something that was new and people no one understood to something people are very familiar with who don't need as much of that handholding as they previously did. It's actually a perfect example because if you throw me into any tool these days, no matter how shitty the UI is, I can probably figure it out, you know, based on that little icon that you mentioned. So uh, that is spot on. So let's just say B2B buyers are more educated than they've ever been before. They have access to more information and, you know, their research process is pretty much complete, you know, for the most part before they actually talk to a sales rep. So like, where do you see B2B buyers like getting that information these days? What are those go-to sources of, of, of info for them? So the typical channels that we see people start with, uh, they start in their communities. So everyone talks about this idea of dark social and that is actually true. And it is happening. If you go into a lot of Slack communities, people asking questions around what software they should buy. It is seeing, uh, talking to their colleagues on LinkedIn and other areas like that. Um, so it starts there. 
That's a lot of the time. And then people will go, okay, let me say best alternatives to whatever product you're using at the moment. Then you'll see all the blog listings that list out the top 10 products. And you do that three times and you see, oh, it's consistently the same 10 products. Okay, great. That's helped me shortlist it. Then they'll probably go to G2. They'll go to Gartner, Trust Radius, something like that. And again, they'll be like, cool, there's 300, let's say customer support, 300 products in CRM. There's hundreds of CRMs as well. Marketing automation, same stuff. But really, there's only like 10 that most people are using. And so immediately you go from, I have no idea about anything in this universe to what have my friends told me? What are my uh, peers told me? What are the like five or 10 products I've consistently seen on blogs? And is that still true on G2 and Trust Radius? Okay, great. Now you're probably pretty quickly going from 300 products to realistically, there's probably only like four or five that could meet our needs. And then the current sort of frustrating evaluation experience kicks off from there. Like the discovery piece has been very much democratized over the last like five, 10 years. And having gone through exactly what you just said, you know, countless times recently, I feel like five years ago and even, you know, 10 years ago when I first started working, I used to just look at the Forrester Wave or the Gartner Magic Quadrant and whatever was on there was how I shortlisted in general. And thankfully, I don't do that anymore. And I'm going to my friends and peers and others and actually getting their their recommendation first. Yeah, I think I think that is absolutely true. The You'll see all the review websites now have their own version of the Magic Quadrant because that really does help narrow things down for people. But you now have so many additional sources of information to verify whether that magic quadrant equivalent is still true for you as a company. So how do you think, and this is kind of a big meaty question, but how do you think this has changed the sales process? Oh, I think people come in extremely prepared. So I actually, my old employer, Bain and, and Google, they did a study together recently. It's not going to be a surprising statistic, but it will ground everything that we're about to talk about. So they identified that 90% of purchases will happen off a company's day one list. That day one list basically is like those three, four vendors that they said on day one, we're even going to investigate these. So if your company is not on that day one list, it is very unlikely, almost impossible that you're going to somehow make it on there and be the chosen product. And so you, by the time you as a vendor, are truly interacting with them like face-to-face in a conversation, that person has done a ton of research on you They have, as I said, we just like talked about all the things that they've done. So they come in way more informed. They know questions that they need to ask because they bought more software. Like 30 years ago, maybe they bought one piece of software every two or three years. I don't know. I'm kind of making that up a little bit. But you can imagine now like people have bought multiple pieces of software before in that same year as that one individual, let alone their company has hundreds of pieces of software. So they probably have a procurement process, even if it's not like really Uh, tactically written down, but there is a general approach that they want to take. People come in with scorecards and rubrics and like all of these sorts of things. They bring in their key stakeholders really early on. So what you see is just like people come in like a lot of the way to the finish line. They're in many ways looking for you to showcase the thing that they couldn't discover themselves. And then lastly, like not stuff up. Don't show them red flags and don't be far too expensive. And, And so if you're talking to a company like, you have a pretty good success rate at that point, um, but they're, they're coming in with so much more knowledge than they used to. So how do you think sellers can accept that and begin to adapt? Because the way that they've sold for you know, however long feels like it needs to change too, no? 
Yeah, I think there's this idea of adaptive go-to-market, which is around like identifying how particular segments of your customer base want to interact with you and want to purchase from you. And if you're able to identify what what different segments want, you can then cater a different experience to them. So maybe one of those experiences is entirely self-serve, product-led. They don't want to talk to anyone. It's like, great. How do you build a go-to-market that enables that? There is one that is entirely... Um, only vendor, only sorry, only sales rep involved and nothing else. And you just hand the keys over at the end. And that that's the other end of the spectrum. And then there's some combination in between where people want a little bit of help from, from an account executive, but they actually really want to self-serve as much as they can or, or, or whatever it is. There's some combination of each of those things. And so as a company, what you really want to focus on is identifying which parts of your audience want specific offerings and then finding ways to market that part of your go-to-market to them. So whether you're promoting self-serve or you're promoting hand, holding the hand or white glove concierge, whatever it is, right? And ensuring that your messaging is really tight against each of those segments. And then ensuring that you as a company can have people come in from different paths and still give them a fantastic experience. I love that. Now, test box, let's say, is a little forward thinking right now. I think the market's going to catch up to it probably pretty quickly. But for people and companies who are not ready to just use TestBox, how would you recommend they start to ungate their product? What are some of those early like stages that companies can, can work through before they graduate on to using something like a TestBox? Yeah. The simplest form is just really good screenshots and really good videos of your, of your product. So really being able to enable someone to see how you use it, where the watchouts are, what are the great parts of it, enable them to get a look and feel for it. That's probably step one. Step two is probably having a product tour that is clickable. So enabling you to maybe set up some demo workflows and be able to click through through it all. There are some challenges associated with products like that. Like you need to update them all the time. It can be really costly to do that and take a lot of time to build the workflows really well. I know you've experienced this at MetaData yourself. Talking with, my with hell right them. now. Yes. Yeah. So... so uh, so that is a version that can work for some companies. And then you could go to the next step, which is a good free trial um, that then converts into an AE. You go to the next step, which is a good PLG experience, which is enabling people to like self-discover. Um, they're sort of like the typical models today. I would say the way we think about TestBox is actually enabling you to do most of those things simultaneously without um, having to put a lot of work in yourself. So we work with some companies to help them figure out how they can create free trials that have really good data, that have those configurations, and that um, AE can share with their prospects. So it's kind of giving that PLG-like experience, but a much deeper version of that while still having an AE involved, if that's your model today. Or you could be on a marketplace entirely standalone and still be able to do those things. So we're trying to enable like most of those things that I just talked about on that spectrum, because we know like some companies are very mature on these things. Some companies aren't mature at all and they need help to mature. And, and we hope that we can do that for them. So I think one of the most challenging parts of going through this process of ungating your product is getting internal buy-in and whether it's leadership, whether it's sales, sales engineering, at first, usually they're they're hesitant to show off more of the product. So how would you recommend people try to make that case internally to, to ungate their product? 
this is like the gated to ungated marketing blogs white papers I'm journey. Giving you the, I'm giving the you the journey. soapbox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's going to be exactly the same, right? Where there's still a lot of companies who will gate because of lead lead numbers are really important to them. That's how people are measured. All of this sort of thing. It's going to take a while to get people off that, but we're seeing that given that people want to be more informed by the time they get to you giving them value upon value upon value through your marketing or your blogs or whatever means that they're almost sitting there being like, you're giving all of this away for free to me. What is behind the paywall? It must be like utopia. And that's kind of the vision that we're trying to create here on like the marketing side. Now, can we do that on the product side? Absolutely. And that, and that's the same idea here. Um, and, and the things that we have seen with customers of ours, um, both on the marketplace and on our, on our vendor product side is significantly shorter sales cycles. So we're talking like people who've been on our marketplace will introduce them to one of our partners and within like 48 hours, they'll sign a contract and be done. Like it's insanely fast. So that's an example. Or we'll see that stakeholders who are previously not engaged now get engaged because they have the ability to get their hands on the product themselves and they will move the decision along faster. Or you'll see higher average sale prices because often people will say, oh, we're going to see how this goes for the first six months. So we'll only get five seats. But if it goes well, we'll get to 20. And now we're starting to enable people to go, you know what? I actually feel really confident about this. We'll start at the 20 straight out the gate. Um, and then additionally, because you've got these things that are shorter sales cycles, easy to give demos, higher um, average selling prices, those reps themselves are able to talk to more customers at once and give them a better experience. We've had lots of feedback, people basically saying like, this is the best software buying experience I had and, and is a reason that I bought this specific product. So there's a lot of very revenue generative reasons to move towards ungated products that actually feel and look really, really good for the customer as well. You better be using that quote that you just gave me as a testimonial on your website. Are you using that right now? <laughs> I don't know. I should. I really should. <laughs> <laughs> that might need to be on the homepage hero. Uh, my marketing brain never shuts off. So... I think one of the other things that I'm interested in is how different teams need to change like what they're doing in order to support this, you know, ungated product approach. So for a marketing team, what does this mean to them? Like, how do they need to change what they're doing, you know, compared to previously just hiding everything behind a, a gated, you know, book a demo and, you know, letting sales and sales engineering take it from there? I think it continues to be about providing as much transparency as possible around your pricing, around implementation times, around all of these sorts of things. Because what you see is the more information that you provide to a customer, the more excited and on board they are before they even start really experiencing your product. So that's going to be step one. Step two then is ensuring that that initial experience that they get isn't about showing off features. It's not showing off functionality. It's about showing off the value that that person wants. And so you could, there's a bunch of products out there, but they have very clear activation metrics like this person who is um, started using our product invited a colleague or they made a transaction on our platform or they made three tables in their Notion document or like whatever it is, like whatever the activation thing is. Really identifying that from a marketing perspective is critical because then you can put your messaging around that and ensuring that someone comes in going, I know I'm going to be really successful with this product if I can do these two or three things. And then marketing has to work really closely with products and probably product marketing in this instance to ensure that when someone first experiences their, the, new, the product, they're like, 
great, I know how to use it right out the gate because you've given me walkthroughs or you've just set something up straight away that I can start interacting with really easily. And then what you would do on the on the like the the marketing and sales led side of the business is identifying and watching all of the actions that people are taking in the product and seeing if they do X, we see a conversion rate that looks like Y. Okay, they did X. We're going to send them this email to like encourage them to do that again. Or they haven't used this part of the product that we know is what excites people that look like this demographic of user. How do we send a message to them to continue to nurture them? And so there's a lot of this like understanding how the customer is using the product that needs to consistently be going on so that you can still be talking to them if you are the marketing team or talking to them like you're an AE working with them, but you're doing it in a much more hands-off way, but leading to lower costs for you and probably higher conversion rates over time as well. And I'll speak for myself and what we're doing at Metadata, that would be a completely new muscle for us. So I have to imagine that for companies who don't have a ton of PLG experience, that is something brand new to them too. Um, That, That piece that I just mentioned around like the data and like identifying when they do certain stuff, that is currently very limited, nascent, and is going to explode. There is going to be a huge category of software tooling to make it incredibly easy for you to say, well, firstly, identify what the three things are that mean you're going to have really high activation rates and conversions. Secondly, track when they happen. And then thirdly, send really good automated content or emails or or phone calls or whatever to the person. Like That's going to be a huge category that people need to start thinking about because if you're not doing it or thinking about it today, your competitors are going to do it and they're just going to eat your lunch. So clearly, you know, a a thing or 12 about this space. Are there companies (laughs) that that you admire who you see are doing this really well right now from a marketing perspective? It's really hard because on like the consumer side, there's actually a bunch of like companies that look like B2C products. So you take like Monday.com or you take um, Asana. They're obviously side by side, similar products Um, or even Slack. Like they know exactly what their activation metrics are that they're pushing people to do. So the entire experience at Slack is like invite three people into that Slack channel. Um, the entire experience at like Asana is around like creating that initial report and getting people collaborating on it. Right. And so they're companies who do a really good job because they're so focused on activation and ensuring every single step of the experience drives people towards that. So if you're looking to understand what good could look like there, that is a starting point. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's where it needs to be yet or where it could go, but it is a very good starting point. Like we've looked a lot at Monday.com's um, onboarding flow, which actually asked quite you, the, there was an iteration. I don't know if it's the current iteration, but there was an iteration that asked a lot of questions. They were kind of like a comprehension exam that you may have had as a kid, which was like fill in the blanks. Oh, but God. it was like maybe five or 10. Yeah. TSD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thankfully, they were easy fill in the blank questions. Uh, But it was like, tell us about your job. Tell us about the industry that you're in. Tell us about what you're trying to drive, like a a few things like this. And then it meant that the experience behind the button was totally different based on the questions that you answered. And that's really powerful. The more that you can create experiences like that, the more exciting it is for that user because they're already pretty much bought in because you're showing them how to get value out of your products within like 10 seconds. I dig that. I uh, can't not open my computer and not see like a Monday.com ad. I feel like they're everywhere right That's now. That's probably true. Yeah. That <laughs> and ClickUp seems to have bought every billboard under the sun, whether it's in SF or Chicago or everywhere else. Yeah. So I'm surrounded. <laughs> yeah, it's real. Those, those companies are going really hard at this space because they know they have a ton of data on what works and what doesn't. And they're all just capturing, trying to capture a ton of market share here. And, and their products like not insanely complex 
And so they're able to do a lot of the analysis in the background really quickly. Um, and they've been iterating on that really fast over the last few years, which has been pretty impressive to see. So I'm not trying to get you to uh, spill any details that you can't, but are there any categories of software that you think are ripe for like what TestBox does and like maybe how painful it is to buy some of those pieces of software? Yeah, I think we're primarily thinking RevOps is an area where we have heard so many people who hold that job title or something similar anyway, just say, I'm I have tons of tool fatigue and I am tired right now. And so that's a lot of where we're looking to focus is sales and marketing teams buy a lot of software. They're very frequently tearing something out, putting something else in, seeing if it works because it's like all, all intended to be revenue generative. And so that means that they're buying a lot of tooling all the time going through painful buying experiences. So we're going to focus there and ensure that we can enable those people to be as successful as possible. Yeah. And I think I'll speak from my own experience you know, and marketing a piece of MarTech right now. I think so many buyers of MarTech have been burned by empty promises, all the marketing in the world that it promises to do everything under the sun. And then you start to use the tool and you're like, well, wait a second, this does not match up at all to what you said yeah. in the sales process. So I think from my own perspective, being able to get underneath the hood of some of these tools that I've seen in that landscape diagram that gets bigger and bigger and bigger every yeah. year <laughs> that would be most helpful for me because then you can kind of see how it actually works instead of taking some yeah. salesperson's opinion for it yeah i think what it was a few years ago we were at eight thousand martech tools then we passed ten thousand pretty quickly are we up to 12 yet i can't remember like we, we're pushing we're pushing i don't far. think so but i i think you know come this time maybe a year definitely two years from now i would not be surprised if we're already at you know yeah. 12K tools Wild. on there. It's just impossible to keep up with. Uh, so I'd say one other big question for you, since you're on the forefront of this, what do you see of like trends right now or maybe any predictions that you are you know ready to make of how software buying may change you know, a couple of years from now, five years from now? I won't ask any further than that because I don't even know what I'm eating for lunch tomorrow. Software buying at the end of the day was become a significantly more consumer-like experience. We have now set expectations through how we buy clothes, shoes, a new like spatula in a house, whatever it is. Like we have the expectations of like we can ask for it, get a ton of information on review websites, have it delivered to our house within a day or two and be able to return it 48 hours later, no questions asked because we've tested it out and played with it, right? So there's this expectation or even like with clothes, a lot of people will buy like three types of clothes and then like choose the one they like. Right. So we have this consumer experience expectation because my girlfriend is, would never do that. What you're saying. No, yeah. never. <laughs> no, no. Hey, I, I, I have done it once or twice myself. It, it happens. Right. Um, and so that consumer experience is coming for software very, very quickly. And what we're going to see is there are going to be marketplaces that enable people to have that consumer-like experience where they can test and compare. And that's like what I'm aiming to build and what we're aiming to build with TestBox. And I, I suspect we will see competition because it's obviously where the market is going. That's on that side. And then for like the sales team members, um, there's going to be an adaptation of their role. Sometimes they're going to be really hands-on and it's going to look like it does today. Other times they'll need to shift their model to be about enabling that customer to be successful in the buying process and being like, 
hey, you've addressed that you've seen this problem. Like, here's how we can solve it with you very specifically and like maybe do the work with them and sit by side, side by side with them a bit more than like against each other almost over a Zoom or a table or whatever it is. Um, so the sales job is going to change a little bit. And then that's obviously all of those things are going to impact marketing, marketing significantly where it's going to be all about more transparency, high levels of communication and ensuring that people get value out of your product as quickly as possible the moment that they start interacting with you. So we've talked a lot about the consumer experience in the B2B software buying process. We haven't really talked about the software companies themselves. Do they recognize how painful this process is? Are they aware? Are they in denial? Like you talk to all those companies, what are they saying? It depends who you're talking to in the organization, right? So let's talk to an, uh, to an AE specifically. They have pretty high turnover in their jobs. I think the average AE is like two years max in, somewhere around that. that like I ten, mean, that even seems high for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> tenure in a company because partly because they get really bored of saying the same thing six times a day, every single day, doing the exact same demo, all of this. So they're recognizing that the value addition that they are providing is lowering over time and that they themselves are not massively satisfied about their jobs. So the AE is sitting here being like, how do I become more productive? And, and how do I do it in a way that I'm not spinning my wheels on deals that uh, maybe people aren't actually that interested, but they're engaging with me anyway. But also like, how do I get to being really value additive to this customer? And, and that's what we've seen reps being frustrated by. They just want more deal flow, more success, more engagement from the customer and enabling them. And then at the, at the sort of more senior level side, you're seeing people go, look, we need to have more productive reps. We need to not be wasting as much time as we can. We need to shorten our sales cycles. Like we need to do all of these things without necessarily changing their model. Like they keep saying these are the goals, but they're not changing the model. And so now it's about like, what are the adaptations we need to make to actually achieve those goals that we've wanted for years? And you also see that a lot of companies in their like annual reports or their quarterly earnings will talk about the fact that they're relying more and more on external partners because they cannot hit their revenue goals entirely with just their own internal sales team. And so they're looking for ways to also tack on other people and other companies to enable them to grow more successfully as well. So you'll see more of that happening simultaneously. Interesting. Yeah. And I think for me, from a marketing perspective, when you can tee up better deals for your sales team and they're not complaining about the quality of inbound demos that they're having and how much time you just wasted of theirs on some demo that wasn't going to amount to anything, it's kind of a win-win for them too. So yeah. And, and that is why there's so much power in like the analysis and the analytics of like how people interacted with my product when it is maybe a PLG motion. They've done these three things. That means they're extremely qualified. Great. Let's like talk to them, get them on a call, make them successful. Oh, they started using our product. They seem kind of unqualified and they've just like done nothing. Probably not worth your, your sales team talking to them. So like having that marriage between marketing product and sales in that moment is particularly important. Because marketing teams and sales teams will be much better friends when the product team's also involved. And that is the dream that I think everybody's working towards. So, yeah. uh, Sam, this was awesome. I feel like I learned a lot. Uh, I still got to text Olivier after this and get the dirt. Uh, maybe right. we'll share it in the, the social clip for this. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. Uh, but thank you for coming on Demand Gen U. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Demand Gen U. 
If you want to hear more, make sure to subscribe to get future episodes. You can also submit a specific topic you want us to talk about by DMing us on LinkedIn. If you like the show or want to share feedback, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep improving and get the word out to other marketers just like you. This podcast is brought to you by Metadata, the first demand generation platform that launches paid campaigns that self-optimize to revenue. If you're looking for a tool that makes it easier for you to build audiences, launch paid campaigns, and experiment at scale, you'll love Metadata. B2B marketers at Zoom, Okta, and ThoughtSpot use Metadata to automate the time-consuming parts of running paid campaigns so they can focus on the things that matter.